We're in the book of Habakkuk now. I decided to just keep moving forward after Nahum. Uh, chronologically, that fits. Habakkuk was written sometime uh, between the fall of, of Nineveh and the fall of Jerusalem in 586. So Nineveh fell in like 612, and Jerusalem was finally captured, besieged and captured and totally destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. There's another episode where the Babylonians come to Jerusalem and rather than besiege it, Jerusalem says, we give up. And they uh, had part of their population deported and a, um, a leader was put in place to rule over Jerusalem that wasn't in the direct line of David. And uh, that person is eventually, eventually Jerusalem rebels again and Babylon comes and conquers all of Jerusalem. This is Habakkuk is a prophet who lived in that time looking forward to when Jerusalem would be completely and totally overtaken by Babylon. They rebel one more time and Babylon's had enough and it is destroyed. It is important to note again, and we covered this a little bit, that again in context, um, we talk about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel. And the northern kingdom is all the tribes except for the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. And we refer to them as the southern kingdom. But Assyria, when they came and took away the northern kingdom, they took the northern kingdom, meaning the actual king in the north and all of their control, as well as conquering all of the cities in the southern kingdom except for Jerusalem. God spared Jerusalem. In fact, Assyria was able to take everything in both the northern and southern kingdoms and all the way down into the major cities of Egypt and everything was under their control. They besieged and took all of those cities. The only city that was left standing that was never conquered by Assyria is actually Jerusalem. But inside Jerusalem you have the king and all of his subjects and all the people from the surrounding area that had fled into the city and they survived. Because of that, When Nineveh fell, which was the capital of Assyria, there was obviously some pride in Jerusalem that, hey, they're better than all the other cities, as well as uh, the opportunity for economic development that none of the other cities had. None of the other cities had the protection of not having fallen. They didn't have to do all the rebuilding. It would be not that different than at the end of World War II. All the countries involved in World War II were totally devastated. Even England had faced the, the, the bombing from Berlin and had to rebuild. But the United States was left untouched outside of Hawaii. And so because of that, we were in an economic position of, of uh, great wealth and prosperity, and we've enjoyed that. And that's what we see in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, rather than uh, um, or when, they're, when their good kings die and evil kings take over, Once again, they forget that it's God that actually saved them from the Assyrians and they're in a state of rebellion against him, enjoying idol worship. And we're going to read about kind of what the city was like. And that's what Habakkuk is seeing. He's seeing that in spite of God's preservation of this people, they have turned to wickedness. And so we don't see a whole lot of hope in the near future for the city of Jerusalem and Habakkuk understands that and that's where we enter into his call to God here 
in verse 2. So if we start in verse 1, let's just read down through verse 4. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not say. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. So this is a summary of the situation that Habakkuk is living in. It's actually not that different than the world we live in today. We just came through a time period where you could riot in the streets and nothing would happen to you. You could destroy other people's property and nothing was done. And it's, it's not just one side of the political spectrum that doesn't always follow the rules and, and isn't always interested in justice. But we see this in our own country. We see violence exists. We see there's strife. We see the laws ignored. We see justice isn't upheld. We, we all know that depending on, even, even in local politics, pretending, depending on how high up you are in status, is, it depends on how it is that the justice system approaches you. And we certainly have never been good at that in this country. And there's, there's certainly examples all the way from the founding of our country till now where, where we don't do things right. But uh, certainly you look around and it's like, boy, it seems like it just keeps getting worse. Well, that's, what, that's the, the, the land that Habakkuk is in, except take it ten, tenfold. The law is ignored, justice isn't upheld. The wicked are surrounding the righteous and justice is coming out perverted. And so Habakkuk appropriately turns to God and says, how long, O Lord, how long are we going to have to deal with this here in Jerusalem? This isn't another country that's coming and bringing these things about. This is our current state. And so God responds to him, look among the nations, observe, be astonished and wonder. Because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. Now, if we stopped there and just, if we didn't know the story, we would be like, okay, God's going to do something great. This is awesome. Go, God. Yes, you're going to answer my prayer. And here's the answer he gives. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonians. I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. And then we have this beautiful picture of their horses that are nothing like the horses we have here, right? Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. The horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and the rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty, those whose strength is their God. So in answer to the prayer of Habakkuk, God says, hey, I got this. Don't worry. I know you're living in a whole bunch of unrighteousness and injustice and people are being violent to one another and it seems like nothing is going the way it's supposed to go don't worry i'm going to send the chaldeans and they're going to destroy it all habakkuk of course is taken aback by this he's like whoa wait not exactly the answer to the prayer that i was looking for 
So he goes on in verse 12 and explains, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We will not die. And we, I think, is, is the people of Judah. He's saying, hey, wait, you have been around from the beginning of everything. You predate time itself. You are holy. You are totally different than all of us. And because of that, I know we have some security here. But then he acknowledges other things about God. You, O Lord, have been appointed. You have appointed them to judge, meaning the Chaldeans. O you, O rock, have established them to correct. So he's not disagreeing with with what God is, is doing. In fact, he's acknowledging you have every right to do this. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring up, bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net because through these things their catch is large and the food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? So working from verse 12 down through verse 17, we see that there's the acknowledgement of who God is. He has the right to do these things, that he cannot look and approve evil that's going on in Jerusalem. He cannot look at wickedness and not do anything and show, them, show favor to those who are wicked and those who deal treacherously. He cannot remain silent. You have that rhetorical question, why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? It's almost a repeat of what we saw at the beginning of the chapter. Basically in verse 14, you've made, the situation now is that men have become nothing more than like beasts. Not even beasts of the field who seem to have some sort of mind and understanding and and interaction with men themselves. But more like those things like fish in the sea or creeping things, the very elemental things. We've become so debased in our, in our goodness and our righteousness and our, in our, our uh, actions that, that we're no better off than these fish. And he, and he carries that over into what the Chaldeans are going to do. And so, Lord, I understand you're gonna send them, and this is what they do. They gather up all these fish, all these people with a hook, they drag them away in their net, and they take absolutely everything with them. And yet they do all this, and they actually worship the power they have to do all these things. They offer a sacrifice to their net, they burn incense to their fishing net. They're very proud people who put what they are able to do is what they worship. And that's not right because you, O Lord, are the Holy One. You're the one who is standing to judge, not these men. Why is it that you are going to use them? I understand we deserve it. And I understand how this is going to work out. We are nothing but these stupid creatures that follow their own will and desire. But you're sending out these Chaldeans who do not worship you. Why is this going on? So while God will still honor his word to his people and keep them, he will not ignore their evil and not judge them. 
Is he right to use the Chaldeans? We saw the Assyrians were a rod in the hand of God that God picked up to, to punish his people for their rebellion and their sin. And now he's giving this picture of the Chaldeans are, are basically fishers of men, literally out there gathering up men. But they're a fishing net in the hands of God. But they don't do it to worship God. They actually do it to worship their own power rather than the one true God. So in, uh, as I stated, in 586, it's going to come and they're going to be overrun. It's going to be a 30-month siege. And those of you who, who know a little bit of geography and history know Jerusalem is not a big place, right? So 30 months inside Jerusalem under siege. Back in Lamentations 4, I'll just read this for you, is a description of what this siege was like. So understand that even if Habakkuk didn't have in mind exactly what was going to take place in this siege, he knew what the Chaldeans were like. He's made that clear. And God certainly knows what's about to take place when he punishes his people. So let me just read to you Lamentations 4, 7 through 11. Her consecrated ones were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. They were ruddy in body, more ruddy in body than corals. Their polishing was like lapis lazuli. They were gems. They were perfect. They were pristine. Now their appearance is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in their streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It is withered. It has become like wood. So their skin isn't even like old leather. It's even worse than that. It's, it's hard. It's like wood. Better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger. For the, they pine away being stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. They're stuck in this siege. They can't get out. They're, there's limited food now, limited water, limited resources. The hands of compassionate women boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord has accomplished his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger and he has kindled a fire in Zion which has consumed its foundations. This is all the work of the Lord and you think that seems harsh that God acts that way towards his people. And, and is it right that he would do that well, if we turn back to Leviticus 26, so not yet in the land. This is the time of Moses. God goes through and says, you know, you need to follow me and be faithful to me. If you are not faithful to me, I'll just read verse 27 of Leviticus 26. Yet, if in spite of this you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you. And I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. Further, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you will eat. So in Leviticus, God says, Obey me, stay faithful to me, do not leave me. I am your protector. I will give you everything. You are going to be the most wealthy people in the world. You'll have all the comforts that you need. Everything you want will be yours. If you go against me, I will punish you. And this is what the punishment will look like. And now here we are. To a point where God is actually acting upon his promise. 
And now he's telling Habakkuk the time is coming. And it would, be, it would be wrong to believe that Habakkuk doesn't have lamentations available to him. The book of the law would be available to him. It was restored shortly before his time period where they found it and they read it and they all went, oh crap. And it would be wrong to think because they prayed to God and repented when the Assyrians were besieging them and God destroyed the Assyrians before him and drove them back to Nineveh that he's now going to just ignore and still not punish. He delayed. He treated them with mercy for a time. They returned to their sin and now comes the punishment. And that's what we're looking at. This is, this is as about as severe a punishment as we can imagine. And yet it is also justice. It is righteousness. It is the right way for God to act as he judges his people for their sin. So chapter 2. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. What great attitude by, by Habakkuk. He knows what he just did. He just challenged God on, okay, God, are you going to act? God tells him how he's going to act, and he says, wait, I understand you have to act and that we deserve this, but really you're going to use the Chaldeans. You're going to use the Babylonians to come and punish us. Don't you understand? They don't worship you either. Lord, how can this be the way you are going to act? And God makes it very clear, or I'm sorry, um, as he's done this, he has a very clear understanding, Habakkuk does, that he has just challenged God himself. It would also be wrong to assume that Habakkuk does not have Job available to him to read. And he understands that Job did this once. He once challenged God with how God was acting. And Habakkuk is saying, okay, I realize what I just did in challenging God on how he's going to act and treat us. Now I'm going to get myself ready. I'm going to be on the guard post. I'm going to station myself. I'm, I'm getting myself ready because now God is going to speak to me and I need to be ready for this. And he understands he's about to be reproved. He understands he's about to be uh, put to the test. He's about to be changed in his thoughts of who God is and how God acts. And he's wise enough to be ready for it. To say, I don't have understanding and God is now going to give it to me. He was brave to ask the question and now he is going to be even braver to accept the answer. And he's ready to be changed by what the answer is. And that's so important for us as well. When we see bad times coming and we know they're going to come, are you going to be one who's ready to be reproved by God? Are you ready to have God say, no, this is how I'm acting and why. And this is where your understanding is lacking. Habakkuk was ready for that. He was ready to have his mind sharpened by God. And God, God is kind and generous to him. And he gives him the explanation here. And it's interesting. He says, The Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. That the one who reads it, not only is he going to read it, he's going to run with it. He's going to be ready to go with it. He's going to spread it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. And we almost have here in verse 2 that the promise we get in Revelation, when you read about the revelation of Jesus Christ and what's coming at end times, it's like, okay, be ready for this. If you read this, you are blessed. 
Here, it's kind of the same idea. Okay, write this on the tablet so those who read it can be ready. They'll know what's coming. And by the way, it is for an appointed time. It's not indefinite. It's not as though this may, may or may not happen. This is, has an appointed time. And it is coming very quickly. It will not fail. If it seems like it's taking a while, just wait. It's going to come. It's not going to delay. We ourselves should know that at any moment, the earth we live in will be judged. It will be judged. And our expectation should be that this is coming within our lifetime. Okay? If it doesn't come within our lifetime, and we have been waiting for the return of the Lord for 2,000 years, so people have had it not come in their lifetime. Clearly that's true. But if it doesn't come in our lifetime, we should be surprised that it didn't come in our lifetime. God does not delay as we think he delays. God has an appointed time and he is marching towards that time. And when it comes, it will come and there will not be any time for you to say, oh, wait a second. Now I get it. No, it comes like that. It comes, it'll come for, for us and the world we live in, just like that. It'll come suddenly, just as it came in the time of Noah. The Bible says the people were not ready for it at all. Just as each one of you has no idea when that time comes. Those of you who do not have Christ and do not know God and do not live faithfully for Him, at some point your foot will slip and your life will be done and there will not be time. It comes that quickly. It comes with that assurity. You have an appointed time yourself. Understand that. At any moment, your life could be done. Verse 4. And this is maybe the verse that everything revolves around on this, in this book. Behold, as for the proud one, and I think this is referring to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the future king of Babylon who was the one out conquering these cities and the, one, the general that was leading all the people, son of the king. And, and, and I think that's who he's referring to or he's referring to this, the Chaldeans as a whole. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. And those of you in your margin, if you have uh, the footnote, the, the word faith there is interchangeable with the word faithfulness. And I would say faithfulness is probably the right word here. Because it goes beyond just the righteous will live knowing that something is going to happen, a future event is happening. But as they are waiting, they are being faithful. The righteous will live by faithfulness is, is, is a more full understanding of that. Not only do they have a set of beliefs that gets them through, but they persevere waiting for that set of beliefs to take place. So the proper attitude towards the judgment of God and the working of God, not only for the Israelites at this point in time and for Habakkuk specifically, but also applying to our lives we're going to find is that as you're waiting for God to judge the unrighteous, as you're waiting for him to work everything out in your life, the good and the bad, our role is to live by faith or to live with faithfulness while waiting for that judgment. 
It's not just to live because we have the once and for all handed down from the apostles to the saints faith. That is true. We have that body of knowledge. But this is a body of knowledge that includes a continued action of doing what is right in expectation for the fact that judgment is coming. This verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. One is in Hebrews, and if we look at Hebrews 10, verse 38, But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So it's not my righteous one has a set of core beliefs, and therefore he's okay. It's beyond that. My righteous one shall live by the faith. If he shrinks back, I have no pleasure in him. If he shrinks back, then he wasn't, he wasn't one of mine. Because my righteous one lives by faith. He lives that out. But we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Your faith is something, if you have faith, it's something that causes you to live so that you do not shrink back, so you stand and are prepared. And then Hebrews goes on, and we have chapter 11, which we know of as the Hall of Faith, a listing of all these people, and it's not a listing of all these people who who just had faith. It's a listing of people who displayed faithfulness despite their surroundings, despite the fact that everything going around, around them didn't seem to make it possible for good things to happen, for God to work out his plan, yet he did. All the way from, from Abel offering the proper sacrifice through Noah, through Abraham, including Sarah, and it goes on and on and it gets to even the people that lived would have been contemporaries of Habakkuk, talking about those who were stoned, who were sawn in two. The sawn in two there is, is traditionally thought to be the prophet Isaiah. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. Their faith was not a faith of just book knowledge and understanding. It was something that caused them actually to live in faithfulness. We look at chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. We see here the ultimate example of living by faith. If we think that faith is just a knowledge thing, Jesus Christ went way beyond that. We fix our eyes on Him who is the author or the originator or the very first one, the author and perfecter of faith. You want to see what perfect faith looks like? It's for looking at what's ahead of you, looking for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne. That's what faith is. That's what faithfulness is. He endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Why did he do it? So you see what he did and you can do the same. You can live in faithfulness. Down to verse 16 and 17, we see the opposite. We see the ultimate example of living by selfishness. The opposite of living in faithfulness. Let there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, 
who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for, us, sought for it with tears. Esau was hungry. He had been out hunting and everything. He came back, smelled good food, and, and he was willing to give up all of his future in exchange for happiness in that moment, in exchange for fulfilling his own appetite. That's the opposite of faithfulness. And there came a time of judgment when no matter what he did, he could not get the blessing. He could not recover what he lost. There are things in your life that if you don't change now, you never get the chance to change them in the future. There are things, decisions you made in your life 5, 10, 20, 30 years ago that have an impact on you right now, and you can't undo it. And I think the, the older you get, the more you realize some of those things. Down to, down to verse 29 then. Why is it that we need to live with faithfulness? You need to understand that our God is a consuming fire. I think that's a mild way to put what God is about to do in Jerusalem in Habakkuk's day. In Hebrews here, it's just referring to the fact that he is a consuming fire. He does judge. He does hold you accountable. He does hold the earth accountable for what is going on. This is why faith and faithfulness is so important. If we turn over to James 2, just maybe even just a page over in your Bible. James 2, before we get too caught up in this idea that, well, I'm saved by my faith, not by my works. So when I start talking about faithfulness, the temptation is to say, well, you're saying you're saved by your works. No, I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying you can't separate the two. You believe that God is one. Verse 19, I'm sorry, James 2, 19. You believe that God is one. You've got a great picture of God. There is one God and one mediator between God and man. You do well. The demons believe that also. And it scares them to death. So are you better than demons? Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? And then it mentions those that were mentioned in Hebrews. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working in his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he, called, he was called the friend of God. You see that man is justified by works and not faith alone. And what he is saying there, he is giving what came first in Abraham's life, his faith. And if you look back in Hebrews, we see he had faith to leave his home and go to a land that God had promised him. He had that faith. How was that faith perfected? In his works. Do you want to know if he had faith? How good was his faith? Well, let's see if his works were there and it showed that he had faith. It was. You can't separate those two. You can't have faith and have it be real faith. And when it's time to do the work, the work not be present. The rebellion is there. The, the, the inability to do what God has commanded of us. You don't want to separate those two things. And so if we turn back to Habakkuk, Actually, one other place that's mentioned is, I'm sorry, Galatians. 
I did want to touch on that. It's mentioned in Romans as well, but Galatians 3, 11. Know that no one is justified by the law before God. It is evident for the righteous man shall live by faith. So if you want to do the other way, if you want to say, well, okay, then I'm going to pursue all these works. But if you don't have faith, the works don't get you anything. If you have the faith, you'll do the works. If all you have are the works, they're worthless. You have to have actually the faith to be justified by God. You have to have that knowledge and assent and, and recognition of who he is and accept. And the Bible also talks very clearly, you can't just accept God and not his son. So now that Christ has come and, and we actually get the benefit of knowing exactly how the, the God's plan of redemption is worked out and we can look back at it, not just look forward hoping for it, um, we ourselves are even more expected to have faith in what God has done. Works alone will not save. So let's turn back to Habakkuk. And we have here in 5 through 17, this description of what's going to happen to the Chaldeans, what's going to happen to Babylon. And it started in verse 4. You have the proud one, his soul is not right within him, contrasted with those who live by faith. Habakkuk, you live by faith. Understand, this is what I'm going to do to the Chaldeans. Wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol. He is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. So that's what they're out there doing. They're just, they, their appetite is not satisfied. They're pulling in all this wealth and all these people to their own kingdom. Will not all of these take up a taunt song against him? All the people that they're conquering. Even mockery and insinuations against him and say, woe to him who has increased what is not his for how long and makes himself rich with loans. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them because you have looted many nations and all the remainders of the people will loot you because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land and to the town and all its inhabitants. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples. So you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it from the framework. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord and the waters cover the sea. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look at their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and the utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all of its inhabitants. So God is, is pronouncing a judgment upon Babylon. And that judgment is going to come about because it will be the proper response to what she has done to all of those she conquered. Her undoing will be, will be because of the treatment of the other nations around her. And that's one of the lessons you get if you read through Amos and you read the woes to all of the nations surrounding Israel before God judges Israel. 
God judges them based on the way they treated other nations. And that's what God is doing here. He's saying they're not without judgment. Don't worry, Habakkuk. Yes, I'm going to judge your, your people. I'm going to judge my nation, Israel. But I'm also going to judge all of these other nations because of what their actions have been. And then it looks specifically at the idolatry of Babylon contrasted with the worship of the one true God as it was to be in Israel. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake, to a mute stone, arise, and that is your teacher. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. So a picture of the idolatry that was Babylon, and, and, and even in Revelation, is a, Babylon is a, as a country, as a nation is restored, the idolatry imagery is all still there. And it contrasts that with the God of Israel. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So the one true God, there is no image of him. He's not put together by man. Man is not something that creates him. For, for our God is a self-existent God. Our God existed before we did, needed nothing from us. And, and that's one of the reasons we don't make images of our own God. And any image we make of anything that we hold in reverence in a, in a spiritual way would be wrong. And God doesn't give us an image of himself. He gives us a temple in which he can quote unquote dwell. We know that, that no temple made by the hands of man can, can contain the glory of who God is. And yet God lowered himself at the, at the um, founding of the temple in Jerusalem, the one that exists as this prophecy is being given and filled it with his glory so that all the world could see that he was there in his temple. There's no opportunity to turn to God and the God of the Bible, the God of the nation of Israel versus the God of Babylon and say, why did you do this? Or we want it to be this way, please give us this. The God in the Bible here, you saw fall silent before him. He is in his holy temple and all the earth should be silent before him. We sit and we wait just as Habakkuk knew, yes, I'm gonna bring this request to God, I'm gonna say, why is all this happening? And how can you use the Chaldeans? And now I'm gonna step back and I'm gonna wait and be silent and wait on the Lord and see what his answer is. That's the difference between the God of Israel and the God of the nations around Israel. The Lord is in his holy temple. Now it is interesting to note the holy temple is about to be destroyed and laid flat to the ground. And that's one of the judgments God is bringing upon these people. He's removing himself and his presence and his temple from them. And then we move to, to chapter 3 here. And I just want to point out, this, is a, this was intended to be liturgy, a song of some kind. You can see, I think, in verse 3, 9, and 13, Selah or chorus, or a break in the music, and it even says at the end of this, this is for the choir director on my stringed instruments. So this is written as a, as a uh, piece of worship music. Um, 
It's a song about the wisdom of being faithful. I think it's, it's taking us back to why is it wise to be faithful? It's because of who God is and what he accomplishes, who the Lord is. Yeah, you've said a lot about who the Chaldeans are and what a great people are. Let me explain to you who our God is. Lord, I've heard the report about you and I fear, O oh Lord. Revive your work in the midst of years and in the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. What a great statement. In, in your wrath, I understand that wrath is coming, Lord. I understand that this is who you are. But in the midst of that, Lord, remember mercy. What a great prayer. Great prayer for us today in the world we live in. In the midst of seeing our nation headed in the direction it's headed and we're worried and we're concerned and we know that according to Romans, God judges people like that. We know in the Old Testament, God judges nations who do some of the things our nation does. In the midst of that, the prayer should be for mercy, Lord. And I know you will punish, Lord. I know you're righteous. I know your wrath is a terrible thing. Please be merciful. And here we have over the next... Well, through verse 15, we have this picture of, of both past and future judgments of God. And, and just want to read through that. God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens. The earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand. And there is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence and plagues come after him. Kind of that picture of what he was doing in Egypt, right? He stood and surveyed the earth and he looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed and his ways are everlasting. Everything we thought could never be changed. God would come and act and things, mountains themselves would be shattered. I saw the tents of Cushion under distress and the tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers or was your anger against the rivers or was your wrath against the sea? that you rode on your horses and on your chariots of salvation. Your bow was made bare. Your, the rods of chastisement, chastisement were sworn. I like that picture. Your bow was made bare. He basically uncovered and brought out his instruments of war so that all could see them. And then you went and you cleaved the earth with rivers and the mountains saw you and quaked and downpours of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. I think that might be a picture of actually the flood and the destruction that came through the flood where the high mountains were brought low and new mountains were brought up and the, and the waters of the deep covered over and over again the land over the entire surface of the earth. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows and the radiance of your gleaming spear. Just when the sun and the moon, and this is figurative, sometimes, it, just as a quick aside, sometimes as a dispensationalist, our hermeneutics get knocked because we're literal. We also do understand what poetry is and what poetic language is. God does not have a bow, just so we're clear, and we understand that. Um, the sun and moon here aren't standing in their places, although that did happen once, right, in the old, before this. Um, this is a picture of the, when God's light and God's radiance and his power are all of a sudden made known and are seen, the sun and the moon just stop. And they're like, well, we're nothing. That's the, that's the image we're given here. 
the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. And you went forth for the salvation of the people and the salvation of your anointed. And this, I think, is, is showing pictures of God and what he will do, I believe, for the future nation of Israel. Not because of the goodness of Israel, clearly, but because of his plan for them. You trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of evil and lay him open from thigh to neck. Now understand, this is my favorite part of this chapter. This is in a hymn, okay? We struggle sometimes singing the battle hymn of the Republic, right? Because, well, it's kind of violent and it's about war. And they should. Here's a hymn written by a prophet of God that talks about God taking his sword, going after his enemy and cutting him open all the way through thigh to neck. Guts him. You pierced with his own spears, the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exalted exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses and on the surge of many waters. So we have this picture of the past and future judgment of God. Well, why is this in here? It's to remind Habakkuk to encourage him, be faithful, because you know what? God judges and he is coming and he's going to make all these things right. It doesn't look right. It's right that he judges Israel for their sin. He told them he would do it. He's going to do it. It's, it's, he's using the Chaldeans and they deserve what's coming to them. Their sin will come back on them just as they, they distributed it to all the nations around them. And eventually, just as he has in the past with the Egyptians and with some of these other countries that are noted, just as he did with the flood, God's going to come and make all things right. And it's not going to be with, without his, the display of his incredible power, his incredible glory. And in this case, his incredible glory as a warrior. I heard... And my inward parts trembled at the sound of my, and the, at the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. So now we have this picture of him awaiting what's going to take place. As, as Habakkuk understands all these things are coming, he's got it. And now he's going to live faithfully. But he doesn't do so and say, so none of this matters. No, he knows that, okay, I'm going to live faithfully, but boy, this is still really, really scary. And I, I, the, the wrath of God that is coming is still something that terrifies me. The people that he's going to send still terrify me. You know, and we have that verse in the New Testament um, that, that, you know, be anxious for nothing, but everything through prayer and supplication. Let your request be made known to God. Okay, he let his request be made known to God. God said, here's my answer. Here's what's going to happen. And this, this holy, righteous man of God in faith is trembling because of what's going to come. Is he sinning because he's anxious? No. He still holds on. He knows what's true and he knows what's coming. But we have to understand we live in these bodies that are not perfect. They're still burdened by sin. And there's still that visceral response to what is going to take place. But here's his attitude, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail 
and the fields produce no food, and the flock should be cut off from the field, and there be no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet. He makes me walk in the high places. Isn't that amazing? He knows and he understands. He has a better insight than all of us, for he was given a vision of, by God himself that he just saw. He's told all these things directly by the Lord. He speaks with God. And I think that's an audible thing that God is talking to him here. And he knows that the terror that's about to befall his people. And he's able to know this is God working out his plan in all of history and the pain and suffering involved in it. But even if he takes everything away, I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet. He makes me walk on the high places. Then it ends with just the postscript there, the choir director on the stringed instruments. So what is the right response to God's righteous actions? And that righteousness comes also with judgment, for it would be wrong to judge, and he is right to judge. What is your response? Your response is to be live by faith. Not just have assent to the knowledge, which he, he clearly he does here. He accepts what's about to take place from verse 16 through 19. But he does so, and he's going to carry on. And what is that picture of faithfulness? He exalts in the Lord and he will rejoice in the God of his salvation. And the only reason he does that is because God strengthens him to do it. His faith isn't just in a, a knowledge of it. His faith is actually going to produce action. It's, his faith is a faithfulness in what he does. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you and praise you for you are in the heavens, in your temple, in your throne room this very morning surrounded by angels praising you, hiding their faces for they cannot look upon you, Lord. Your son is at your right hand. And we know that everything that takes place on this earth that brings sorrow, pain, and suffering is somehow you carrying out your plan. And Lord, we, we not only believe that that is right and good, that you are righteous and holy in carrying out those things, Lord. But we carry on and we look forward to that day and we enjoy what we have from you in faithfulness, acknowledging who you are and that acknowledgement is something that's displayed in our lives. And I pray that would be true for each one here. Those who do not know you, Lord, I pray that they will understand the wrath that is to come as well. And they themselves would not wait because today and right now is the hour of your salvation that they would turn to you and embrace you and pursue you and, and work out their salvation going forward, Lord. That they would try and desire to find those ways to be faithful and continue to work on that, knowing that all of us fail miserably in our attempts, but the righteous live that way and they pursue it in spite of their flaws. It's in your son's name we pray these things because he is the one who reigns over all, and you have given all things to him. Amen.